that okay? That gonna work? So cool? <laughs> Thanks, Jen. How's my hair? My hair okay? Good? Okay. Uh, years ago, when my eldest was about seven, I introduced her to Looney Tunes for the first time. We watched uh, one episode in which a plane being flown by bugs and carrying San Yosemite Sam starts to nosedive. Sam grabs the one parachute and says, so long, farming, and jumps. Much to his horror, when he pulls the ripcord, however, camping supplies stream out the back. Now, in most cartoons, calamities like this turn a character, you know, they end by turning the character into a, a struck gong or uh, a, an accordion or a pancake with feet, but not, not, this, not here. Here, the free fall from thousands of feet ends the way it would in real life. It's fatal. In the next scene, a stunned Sam rides along on a downward escalator through a fiery landscape. When it stops, Sam finds himself before a tall podium, looking up at a slightly bored Satan doing some bookkeeping. Dad, where is he? asked my daughter. She had no idea. I kept my answer pretty vague. Not because I didn't think she, she uh, didn't, wouldn't be able to understand a more thorough explanation. I didn't think the concept of hell was beyond her. No, she'd understand. In fact, my concern was simply whether she could get beyond it. After all, kids know fear. They understand rejection. They carry guilt and shame. The idea that there's a place where those feelings get multiplied by infinity and stretched out for an eternity? Well, I imagine it might just confirm what her nightmares hinted was the case. For the ancient Hebrews, exile was a kind of hell, a place of banishment where they lived burdened with guilt and fear of rejection. We talked last week about various types of psalms, and one of the types of psalms is a psalm of disorientation. Well, the hell of exile prompted many of those. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? Now, the answer to that question of how long is actually quite complicated for, in terms of the exile. One answer is this, that the exile would last 70 years. It was 70 years before they were allowed to return home. But is that the end of it or just the beginning of the end? After all, it wasn't like returning home after a vacation. Everything just as you remembered. The temple, the place where God came near is just a pile of rubble. The sacred objects housed in its holiest of holy rooms, they're gone forever. And while you were away, others have moved in. No, you're not as far off as you had been, but home, not yet. 
How long, O Lord? So I did not talk to my kids about hell, not because they couldn't grasp it, but because they could have. We all can. It makes sense that our imagery of the place locates it deep underground, because that's the way it operates often in us. It operates the way our own fears operate. On the surface, everything looks normal, stable, even pleasant. But beneath the surface, a whole, there can be a whole other reality. We may be living at home, but something about it still feels like exile. There was a remarkable episode in the show Louie. Most of the episodes featured its main character, Louie, as an adult. Occasionally, one would revolve around his childhood. In one such episode, Louis attends Catholic school. A nun, frustrated with Louis and his friends' misbehavior, determines to teach them a lesson. She invites a doctor to come the next day to give this presentation on the crucifixion. And to illustrate what was done to Jesus during this presentation, the doctor volunteers Louis and his friend to come to the front. He and his friend stand, or his, he has his friend stand with his arms outstretched. And he gives Louis a, a mallet and some, and some spikes. And he puts the spikes up to his friend's hands, tells them to pound it in. He says, you did it to Jesus, do it to him. Well, that night, Louis has a uh, fitful sleep nightmares tap into that fear and guilt. In fact, he wakes up and sneaks out of the house and into the school's chapel. Tears running down his face. He pulls pliers from his back pocket as he approaches the life-sized crucifix at the front of the sanctuary. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, he says as he pries the nails out of Jesus' hands. The next day, Louis's mom is called to the school. She assures the nun that Louis will most certainly be punished. Then she returns to the car and sees Louis slouched in the back seat. What were you thinking? She asks. I'm so sorry I did that to Jesus. Suddenly, the mom realizes what's going on. This wasn't just a prankster up to some hijinks. This was a kid overwhelmed by fear and guilt. A kid going through hell. A kid in exile. Is that what they're teaching you in there? She asks. Oh, that's it. You're going to public school. To grow up into a healthy, balanced adult, you've got to come to terms with your fears, your shame. Louis's mother addressed it the way an increasing number of of Americans do. Takes them out of the church. Enough of that. The book of Ezra begins with a royal decree allowing the first wave of Hebrews to return home. 
Ezra, the author of the book, is part of a second wave of exiles. When he arrives, he is excited to see that the rebuilding of the temple is underway. But not all the news is good. His fellow priests have done some recon and report that many of the Hebrews here aren't actually Hebrews. Some of the men have returned here with foreign wives and offspring. This is what Ezra writes. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Eventually, he pulls himself together enough to pray. And here's his prayer. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Like young Louis prying the nails out of Jesus' hands, Ezra resorts to some desperate action to undo guilt and avoid exile. He gathers the people together and declares, separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from foreign wives. And they do. The children, the wives and children of those those marriages are banished, sent to fend for themselves. And while it's an extreme action, it can't be altogether surprising. When you're dealing with internal exile, when a hell of guilt and shame lurks beneath the surface, this is what we do. We draw lines. To avoid feeling bad about ourselves, we find others to banish who are worse. We listen to... uh, Senator John Calhoun in 1848. With us, the two great divisions of society are not the rich and poor, but white and black. And all the former, the poor, as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals. In other words, the benefit of of enslaving a race of people was not just free labor. It kept poor whites from feeling ashamed, ashamed of their poverty. No, just being white was enough to consider yourself high class. You recall last week what I'd said about the opening section in Ephesians. In Greek, it's just this long, run-on sentence. It's it's more than a run-on sentence. It's an ultra-marathoner of a sentence. But this tour de France of words offers praise to God for a plan hatched before time began to bring all things into divine glory through Jesus Christ. In other words, this is not a fly-by-night operation we're dealing with here. The death and resurrection of Christ was not an improvised move. It has deep roots. Not only does this plan go so far back as to predate time itself, its future 
the future of this plan is, is about as good as done. Paul describes it as an inheritance. We may not have fully shared in the glory to come, but it's ours. In other words, glory was locked in in the past, secured in the present through the work of Jesus Christ, and awaits us in the future. Our passage this morning lays out the implications of this for us right now. And the word at the heart of those implications is the same word at the heart of last week's message, though that was not by design, at least not my design. And that word is peace. It appears four times in our reading. Peace. You know, maybe part of the reason we are so haunted by fear and guilt, maybe part of the reason is this. Human beings at their birth are among the least equipped creatures to be able to, least equipped for survival of any creature on earth. We are so dependent, and we are so dependent for so much longer than our fellow creatures. I mean, it makes life terrifying. And not only terrifying, but also deeply infuriating. In his book, Just Babies, the psychologist Paul Bloom writes, Families survive the terrible twos because toddlers aren't strong enough to kill. You know, right? Because to us, you know, not getting a sucker or whatever is just an inconvenience. But to the toddler, it's a deep betrayal. It's it's as if the world is falling apart. The world has been reduced to a post-apocalyptic hellscape and it is kill or be killed. In fact, Bloom says, if you measure the rate of physical violence through uh, uh, the lifespan, it peaks at age two. He goes on to say, a two-year-old with the physical capabilities of an adult would be terrifying because we're terrified. We don't know how we're going to make it. Eventually, of course, we learn more sophisticated routes. We find other ways to secure what we want in the face of perceived threats from others. Studies demonstrate how, by the age of three, we learn to tattle. Rather than taking matters into our own feeble hands, we appeal to an authority. Tattling is our first foray into drawing dividing lines, building walls of hostility, to use Paul's phrase between us and them. We tattle to say, they're bad, get them. We're good, protect me. I don't know that the inner two-year-old or the inner three-year-old ever fully goes away. I know from my own experience that the times I'm most likely to be critical of others, whether it's family members, or idiots on Twitter, or drivers ahead of me who have had a full two seconds to realize that the light has already turned to green. I'm most, most likely to be critical of them 
I'm most likely to find them least tolerable when I'm dealing with my own insecurities. That's when I pull out the chalk and start drawing dividing lines and saying, good over here, bad over there. It's a pathetic attempt to gloss over my own feelings of exile. And to all this, according to Paul, Christ declares enough. Your value is not in where you stand relative to some dividing line. These walls aren't securing anything for you. That is why Jesus took a wrecking ball to them, detonated TNT beneath them. There's nothing in it for you. And there is everything in it for you in this new building project in which Christ is the cornerstone and bringing all, all, uh, both those who are far and those who are near together into one. This building project whose cornerstone is one whose survival was not just threatened, but denied and yet overcame death, who overcame the exile of the tomb and has come home, fully home, abundantly, eternally. And this is our peace being brought into this new project, a building whose plans were drawn long ago, but are becoming a reality now. It's our peace when we are confronted by our inner two-year-old impulses, when we feel denied, shortchanged, belittled, when we feel shame and guilt, when rage kicks in, whether we feel we're being taken down an escalator into hell or hell is bubbling up from underneath, we bring to mind what's really going on. The plan set in motion before time began, a plan whose outcome is so secure, it's as if it has happened already. And so there is peace already for all of us, no matter who we are or where we are on life's journey. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.